Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and we are going to have a fun and fascinating conversation this afternoon. So I'm so glad that you joined us. If you liked our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore, and you can download it on any of your favorite um, music platforms. For those of you that are new to our show, we're all about sound information, not just sound bites. That's why we talk for an hour. We want to raise everyone's voice and we want to hear the whole story, not just bits and pieces of it. So our goal, again, is to gather people together and join forces and and really build a community that shares resources, products, and tools. And that means raising voices of those diagnosed, those that care and serve for them, advocates, researchers, family members, and so much more. Now, today is a live show, and so you can join us by calling in at 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. And of course, as always, I love to thank our audience. You guys are just brilliant with your likes, your clicks, and your shares. And we hope you continue to do that because uh, we've got people listening all around the world, and that wouldn't have happened without you. Now, if you're not familiar with the Memory Cafe directory, I would definitely uh, urge you to go there. The Memory Cafes are a support group. I hate even calling them a support group because they're so much fun. Uh, But gatherings where both the person with kind of early to mid uh, memory loss or dementia and their family members can go and build community with others um, and, again, really learn from one another's lived experience. Plus, uh, talk about all of life. So it's not just focused on dementia. I also would encourage you to go to Coral Health, that's C-O-R-O health.com. And because of COVID, they're allowing people to download two of their um, apps. One is called Music First and the other is Coral Faith. Um, both I think you will love. And, um, and I know your, your loved ones with dementia will appreciate them as well. And last, I just want to give a shout out to the Gain Alzheimer's Trial. This is for people 55 to 80 years old that are diagnosed with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. Now, they do need a caregiver or a family member who's willing to attend visits and help with reports on daily activities and oversee medications. But, you know, we're not going to find a cure if we don't get people getting involved 
with these trials. So check out the GainAlzheimer'sTrial.com forward slash E-N, GainTrial.com forward slash E-N. Now, I, like I said, I'm really excited to um, have this conversation today. And I don't know if you're familiar with Lavina Fleming, um, but I, I wasn't really prior uh, to asking her to come on the show. And I'm really looking forward to this because she's, a, she's another family caregiver, care partner, care companion, whatever you want to say, who has turned into an advocate, who has written a book, done speaking, the whole nine yards. And she has written a book called I Love You Always. And it's one family's Alzheimer's journey and lessons learned along the way. And lordy, lordy, don't we know we all need to learn other people's lessons so that our life can be a little bit easier. So let me tell you a little bit about her. Um, she was born in Detroit, Michigan. She was raised in um, Ravina, Ohio, and educated in Cleveland, Ohio. And she's a former educator, school administrator. She's also a certified dementia practitioner and a retired hospice professional. Lavina had the honor of serving as one of the primary caregivers to her mother, who had Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. And she has also, like I said, published this book. I love you always. So, uh, again, I'm just so thrilled to have you on the show. How are you doing today, Labina? Labina, are you there? Let me see. We'll try again. Labina, are you there? Hello. Hello. Gotcha. We're here. Hello. (laughs) I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. Yes. Okay. We're good. Sorry for that okay. technical glitch there. Uh, apparently, it didn't want to unmute. Uh, the life and times of uh, <laughs> of good old technology. Um, so I, again, thank you so much for for taking this time out of your day to to be with us. I wanted to ask you, you know, because everybody always wants to know why did you write the book? What's in it that's so different? Um, and important. What what was your reason behind writing the book, Lavina? Oh, you hit on a, a couple of reasons there. Um, I was very hesitant to write the book at first because I didn't feel qualified, I think is the word that I kept saying. And I had a friend that said to me, God doesn't choose the qualified. He prepares the chosen. And I really feel like he chose me to write this book, I was led to keep a journal um, the entire time that I helped care for my mom, and then later I felt led to lead the book. And when I asked myself the question why, it was not only to share mom's story, and as you know, Lori, there are tons of Alzheimer's and dementia story. Um, We know that the more we share our stories, the more people will understand what dementia is all about. But I wanted to take it a step further. I didn't just want to share my mom's story. I wanted to be able to include what I've learned over the years as a hospice professional and through my training as a a certified dementia practitioner to see if I could add some relatable tips and tidbits 
um, that people could draw upon to help them as they're going through their experience. So that was very important to me. And um, wanted to help people understand that the things that they were experiencing, although it may seem like they're alone, anybody who's traveled that dementia journey has had a very similar experience. So um, I just wanted to bring that to the forefront. That is so true about our journeys are so similar, and yet people are so hesitant to talk. And then once they, they kind of find these uh, others, you know, that are on this same journey, there's just such great relief in that. I mean, it just, it feels like, you know, 100 pounds has been taken off your shoulders because somebody else understands what the heck you're talking about. Because sometimes, I don't know if you had this in your family, but I know I sure had it in mine. People just didn't understand. If they weren't around it, they didn't see it. And sometimes even if they saw it, <laughs> they said they didn't. Um, you know, and it you, you need I think as a as a care partner, you need a sense of validation that I'm not going crazy, that this Absolutely. is happening. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's interesting. You said you you felt um, you know that that you were supposed to do this. I'm interviewing another author on Thursday called uh, her name is Monica Hall, and she wrote a book called Poof, and she says she was assigned by God. I mean, she mm-hmm. really believes, you know, that, that, and, and I think, you know, for me, um, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing too. It, it really is a calling. It's, and there's times I've tried to quit, you know, and said, this is, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, you know? And it was like, no, this is where you're supposed to be and poof, then something else would, would come into play. But I, I don't think people, realize how important this journey is and how how much stories and in real life experience needs to be shared with one another. I think it's just so extremely extremely valuable and I wish it would have been there when I was on my journey with my Absolutely. own mom. Yeah, and I think that's been one of the most um gratifying things for me. I mean, I just published my book. It's only been published since July 10th, which is another story in itself. <laughs> I've had so many people reaching out to me that have read the book and have said, you know, you validated my feelings. Um, you helped me put into words what I was feeling. So um, that's been uh, affirmation and confirmation to me that, you know, this this was God's work as far as I see it, and um, when you do what you feel he is leading you to do, it'll reach the people that it's supposed to reach, and it'll serve the purpose that it's supposed to serve. Perfectly stated. I love that. What did you find to be the most difficult part of writing your book? There were so many difficult parts of writing. Um, The first part, (laughs) yeah, the first was I was trying to write it shortly after my mom passed away. Um, she died in on May 5th in 2018, and I immediately started trying to write what I felt I was being led to write, but it was too raw. I had to walk away from it and give myself some time just to um, accept my mom's death and and to start the healing process. 
And then once I started writing, the hardest thing for me, well, one was reliving the experience. So you can imagine mm-hmm. that was pretty challenging. And then secondly, with me, I'm so anal about things that I kept trying to edit as I went along, which you cannot do if you're writing a book or you'll be writing forever. And I finally had my dear friend and mentor, um, Abby Vandiver, say to me, Labina, will you just write the darn thing? And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that's – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, that was the big challenge. Those three things, I think, were the biggest challenges. Yeah, and I, I hear that being so common. And when you talk about reliving the experience – um, you know, because you think you're, you, you think you got it. You think, okay, I can write about this, and then all of a sudden you're just in tears. You're just sobbing because it's so personal and it's so. I mean, it's just it's it's an, there. Those are emotions that are like never going to go away. You're going to maybe get them under control a little bit more over time, but um, you know, I know even as a, a speaker, when I go out and tell stories, and and I was told. You know, you can't get emotional on stage, and I'm like, you know what? This is my philosophy, and I'm going to do it my way. And and again, it wasn't mine. It, I really believe it was God. But I I don't think people change, and really feel the need to make changes until they get emotional, until they feel the pain or they feel the joy. I mean, they can't go either direction. It, so I think that's part of our I think that's a good thing to be able to not only be able to express your emotions, but it allows the other care partners to express theirs because so many times people think I'm not supposed to show this. I'm supposed to be in control, you know, and I'm not supposed to ask for help. And, you know, all those, all those myths that are out there that add extra burden to a care partner. You're exactly right. And I think um, that was another struggle that I had even in writing the book because there are things that I I would want to write and then I'd go, oh, Lottie would be upset if I say this, that Lottie was my mom, or, you know, do I really want to put that out there? But I found that I just really, I needed to be 100% honest with the story. You know, and I, I said the good, the bad, or the ugly, I, it had to be true. And I felt that the only way I could really help somebody else is if I were 100% truthful. So that's where Good it took for you. Good for you. I, um, I admire that. I, I also have the belief, like with my own mom, and I don't know if, if you have this belief, but she was my teacher. She was my tool. She stuck around 30 years to teach me. And to wow. not share everything would be a disservice to everything she lived through with this disease. And, and so, you know, putting it in a different perspective, you know, one of the the lessons that I learned and and I'm what imagine you did too is, is what is the lesson? (laughs) Why the heck are we all going? (laughs) Why are we going through all this? You know? Um, But when you really take that to heart, it, you know, to me, it changed everything. Um, in terms of how I look at things. So with your book, who do you feel the book will help the most and why? Oh, gosh. Any family 
who is caring for a loved one with a serious illness, perhaps the person who has the serious illness. But um, when I started writing, I think the, the people who were at the forefront of my mind were the caregivers, mm-hmm. caregivers, period, because I, I think they're so undervalued, they're so underrated, they're so underappreciated, and um, I just I just wanted to do something that I that I felt would give a little bit of support, a little bit of hope, a little bit of help to the caregiver. Yeah, what have you had any professionals read it at all? Because I think sometimes I don't know, and this is just my opinion, so please feel free to to state differently. But I but I think sometimes we separate those that serve from family from professionals and yet I think they both learn from each other's examples because they see things through different glasses and through, you know, different angles. And yet I, I think we can all learn from one another. I know I learned from professionals, but I know I taught them a lot too when I you're was ab- going through the journey. You're absolutely and, right. So have have you had professionals review it? I I have actually, and um, one of the reviews that I received was from a psychiatrist, believe it or not, and I think it's the the favorite my favorite review, um, one of my favorite reviews, and she made the statement um, her mother is actually going through the Alzheimer's experience right now. And she said that she had written, she had read all of the professional manuals, all the medical manuals and such, but she found my book helpful because she said that it it presented it in a different light to her. Mm-hmm. And because I was living the experience, I could share my true feelings and thoughts and experiences and tips and she said that she found those extremely helpful. Yeah, I I I see that a lot. I hear that a lot from people and so I I just always encourage people not to underestimate the value of what they've written. Um because I do think it it's wider spread and I think the sooner we can get staff and family talking the same language about yes. what the heck is going on. Uh, the better we're going to be and the faster we're going to be able to improve things. So um, wonderful. Now, you know, when I was looking at your book, um, one of the things that I loved were just some of the titles that you had um, in your table of contents. Like before, you know, you kind of describe things. The struggle is real. (laughs) You know, this, this isn't, this isn't fake guys Um, being put to the test. Um, a change is going to come, and then, you know, rehab, round one, and there's, you know, multiple of those. You talk about going home and more change and the mysteries of the mind, and um, more things are going to change. And here we go again. And I, I remember having all of those thoughts in my head. And, um, you know, what what now? And then, you know, towards the end, you talk about a closer walk and life goes on and um, the years of first, which I think is really, I I think that's something that's not discussed a lot. 
And uh, as we talked offline, you know, the beginning chapters are, are kind of short and sweet, and the longer ones get, uh, or the end, end ones are a little bit lengthier, but not not bad at all. But I love the variety of them, and I love that you have like lessons learned um, within the book as well. And then you'll have some some quotes and things in there as well that just helped you, you know, get through get through things, which I think is. Um, very, very important. Um, what do you think people will take away from the book? Oh, let me see. What do I think the biggest takeaway? That there, I know it sounds cliche when you say you're not alone, but you're not alone. You're not alone. Um, there's such a universality with Alzheimer's and dementia. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor, black or white, uh, it, uh, educated or, or um, uneducated, it just doesn't matter. Alzheimer's chooses everybody. And regardless of your background, it tends to attack us all in very similar ways. And what I, I think my biggest takeaway and what I want people to take is that you need something to hold on to. For me, it was my faith. I don't know how anyone can navigate this journey without a strong faith in a higher power, my God. Um, In those times when you're feeling so alone and hopeless and helpless, you need to have something, someone to hold on to. Uh, If you're fortunate, you'll also have loving and caring family members. But I just believe that the higher power is there and we're all going to gain something from the experience that we go through, but we need that support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. What was some of your biz- biggest awakenings while writing the book? Was Were there things that surprised you or stories you had forgotten about that just all of a sudden then popped into mind going, oh, no, it has to be in the book? There were a lot of things that came to mind. I think at one point I said, you know, as, as much as I read about the subject of dementia and um, the different types of dementias and, you know, how prevalent Alzheimer's was, and as many times as I'd been in the field speaking to caregivers about what they'd experienced, I was not prepared to have the constant conflict between what, I thought I knew and what I was feeling. There was mm-hmm. like a tug of war between those things. Like, um, for, the, for example, just thinking in terms of joining someone in their reality instead of trying to bring them into your home. <laughs> and I think of situations where my mom would come up with these stories, and sometimes I would become so aggravated and angry with her and it was always funny to me because when that would happen with my brother who I called Daniel in the book who was her primary caregiver I would always tell him remember it's the illness not the person but Mm -hmm. I tell you times I would be in those moments and I would just find myself losing it and I would have to try and draw myself in and say, okay, it's the illness, it's not the person, it's not you, it's the illness. But sometimes it didn't work. <laughs> and yeah. I wasn't prepared for um, It's like you can teach yourself facts 
you can teach yourself information, but you can't teach your heart how to feel. So, you know, there was a lot of pain in the course of that journey as well, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I know people always say, oh, you know, you've got this great attitude about this. And it's like, well, yeah, but it took me 30 years, you know. <laughs> it didn't start like that. It was just as frustrating and confusing and exhausting as it is for everyone else. You know, you, you have to process all this stuff and, you know, figure out your way and what's going to work and what's not going to work uh, with it. What, um, I, I'd love for you to, to talk about some of the lessons you've learned. Like, you know, one in here you've gotten in, um, is that, you know, you can't reason with a person who has dementia and you're not going to win. And, and so why don't you go on to explain why you say that and what the importance of acknowledging that does for a, for a care partner? You know, I think that sometimes as, as caregivers and just as individuals, we want to be right. You know, we just want to be right. And the question is, why is it so important to be right? What is the value in it? So if there's a situation that's going on um, that, you know, their reality is different from what's actually happening, so what? Is it hurting them? Is it hurting anyone else? Is it hurting you? If it's not, then it's not important. You know, just go with them on that journey and enjoy the ride. You know, you might have a fun, a fun time. Some things yeah. that, we, that we spend so much time dwelling on, they just are so insignificant in the big scheme of things. Oh, I agree. I, I could make a list a mile long of crap I focused on that, that really <laughs> didn't matter. But I didn't know that it didn't matter until I – until I made some personal adjustments about what care, what quality care really looked like. Um, And until I let go of everything being task-oriented and I could look deeper, I shouldn't even say look deeper, that I could feel first, um, that was a shift for me. Did Did you find that too? Were you a big, like I was like a big list. You know, this has to get done. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very anal and I'm very orderly. Um, I'm very task oriented. My husband would laugh if he heard me say that because I'm also very ADD, but um, which means I'm all over the place. But people I work with would always think I was extremely organized. But it's, it's like you have to be so flexible when you're dealing with someone who has. Um, Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. You know, the best laid plans can can go awry in an instant. Really, um, you just have to learn. You know that that some things just aren't as important as we try to make them appear. Yeah, I um, I for example, and I don't know if you if you or your family did this, but I would always try to be in control. I wanted everything to look perfect. And then I would get mad when no one would help. Well, it didn't look like I needed any help. You know, and and, oh my God, I'm not going to ask. You know, (laughs) can't ask. I look weak. And so then I would would be in this stupid cycle that I put myself in. 
people were willing to help, but I had to ask and I had to let them know what was needed. And so, and that, I did that with family. I did that with their friends. And it wasn't until like big things hit the fan that I realized that was the problem on those things, that I was the one not communicating. Because I thought I was communicating beautifully with everybody, you know, and, and I thought it was very organized. And, you know, my family thought I was a control freak. And, you know, so those are very big and different perceptions of do people want to yeah. be around you or not and, and stuff. And so did you, did you have any of those feelings yourself or was well, your we family strong things? I was. I have to tell you that I was beyond blessed in that um, my siblings, my brothers, um, and I, we we were able to, I, I think, work very well together. Um, I know that that's, that may be a rarity. Uh, my, my one brother lived, moved in with my mom. Uh, he worked at a hospital, and he he moved in with her to be her primary caregiver, and the rest of us supplemented the care. And then we also had a hired caregiver to help. And for communication purposes, we kept a caregiver log where we'd write things that were important that needed to be shared with each other and with um, her physician. And I think we all came to the understanding that there's not one right way to do things. Just because somebody handles a situation or circumstance differently than you does not mean that their way is wrong and your way is right. It's just different. And if you put the care of your loved one, what's in the best interest of your loved one, at the forefront of everything you do, if you're all working towards doing what's best for that person, just recognize that that it does best doesn't mean the same. You know, my best is going to be different from your best is going to be different from someone else's best. But it doesn't mean that one best is better than the other. They're just different. Mm-hmm. And as long as you get the desired result, which is to provide quality care for your loved one, then it's all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it really, yeah. I had stuff on my to-do list that was for me to be busy, not necessarily that needed to be done. Right. I I think when we feel out of control, we feel like we got to do something, you know. Um, Anyways, I I know I straightening my mom's house. You know, I would go when her hired caregiver was there, and and that would be the thing that I would do. She would never allow me to do that if she were well but that would be the thing that would give me comfort when I'd go to visit her if she were sleeping or whatever. I'd just start doing all those things that she'd never let me do before around her house just to give me something to do. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things in the books you the book you talk about is we click, quickly learned that mom was hiding things in fear that items were being stolen. I think that's a common situation. I know my mom stashed stuff all over the place. Um, how did you deal with that, and why do you think she did that? Uh, you know, it's hard to really say for sure why she did it. I, I, I think she hid things because she thought that people were stealing things. 
And then, of course, because she had dementia, she would never remember that she had hidden things. So when she would look for an item that she had hidden and couldn't find it, then obviously somebody stole it. Mm-hmm. And whoever, what we found is whoever was closest to her, whoever was spending the most time with her, that was the person that would be, would be accused of stealing a particular item. So one of the techniques that, that I used with her, if she would call me and say, you know, so-and-so stole, I'll say Daniel, Daniel stole my car keys. And I would say, oh, Mom, you know what, I put those away the last time I was there, and I can't remember where I put them. You know what, the next time I come out, I'll look for them. That would satisfy mm-hmm. And some people would say, well, you're lying to your mother. No, I'm comforting my mother. I'm redirecting my mother. I'm relieving her anxiety in that moment. And if I came out and she mentioned the car keys, then I'd look for them, and by the, you know, a little bit later she'd forget about it. But 99.9% of the time she wouldn't remember. So it was okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, my mom used to stash stuff, oh, my gosh, all over, or she'd, or she'd lose things, like her purse. So we ended up buying, like, two right. purses. So we could just so pull out another one. So you try to find out their, what their favorite hiding places are, whether it's, you know, she would hide things in certain pairs of shoes. She would hide things in a, uh, a antique uh, picture that she had in her in her room. She would hide things in the back of her drawers. She would hide things in the back of the shelf. So you just have to kind of figure out those little hiding places and, you know, know that that's where you need to look when when they're um, on a tangent about something being stolen. Yeah, it, it was hard. I, my mom was of the era of everything was wrapped in a Kleenex with a binder with a lot of times another Kleenex in a bag or something. And it was just, you know, she, she hit it very, very well. Um, you had one of your lessons is sometimes it's easier to accuse someone else of stealing it than to admit that you don't know where you put something, which I, which I think is true because then you have to admit, you know, something. something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, with people. Now, she, your mom also, you talk about, and again, I, I just appreciate the honesty in the book. Um, you said, and then my husband became the target. And she called you saying he was, he was asking her for money. And you were like, Mom, he doesn't need your money. You don't know what he's using it for. <laughs> You know, and how how did you deal with that? And and you know, how do you not take that stuff personally? Because I know so many people they they just get so personally offended over over those types of situations. I I actually remember that situation, and that was one that I didn't handle very well. <laughs> I um. Instead of joining in her reality, which I know I was supposed to do, I was trying to convince her otherwise and, and reason with her. And, and as you know, Lori, you can't reason with someone that reaches a certain stage in dementia. So after um, trying to redirect her did not work, um, I ended the conversation saying that I would call her later. So that was one circumstance that I did not handle very well. I found that when my husband became a target, 
a lot of what I knew to do went out of out the window. <laughs> so yep. I showed my human side in that circumstance. I didn't handle that very graciously. Well, you know, and I think it's I, I think this is an important thing to state too, is that none of us are gonna be great a hundred percent of the time. If we're great even eighty percent of the time, we're doing really darn good. You know, but we, we have to continue and we have to stop beating ourselves off because we screwed up, you know, because we always have another opportunity to make things better. And and I don't think that lesson alone can be hit home hard enough for people because I know I did it to myself. I hear it from care partners all the time, the guilt they feel and how bad. And you, you can't let that stuff weigh you down. You know, you have to take it as a lesson learned. And then go forward with it. Uh, again, get back to that question of what's the lesson. The lesson is I don't want things to go down the way they just did, you know, and, and how, you know, what can I do to, to avert that next time? What can I share with others so that they don't maybe make the same mistake I do? But, again, we all are going to make mistakes, and that's part of being human. And so we oh, – go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm fine. No, I I think that that's one of the things that I I would really um, admonish every caregiver to recognize. You know, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to do everything exactly the way someone says it's supposed to be done. The best you can do is the best you can do, and that's all you can do. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up if things don't go exactly the way we feel they should go. You know, you, you learn your lesson, and then you try and do better the next time. Amen. That is so, that is so, that is just so true. And um, I, I really encourage people to take that to heart. And put it this way, you weren't perfect before, you aren't, you aren't going to be now either. My no. turn to say amen. You're right about that. <laughs> you know, but we, we, I don't know. We put ourselves on these pedestals. We, our expectations are so high because the job is so important. But again, you know, we're still going to screw up and, you know, you're still going to be connected and you're going to have a lesson to learn. Maybe you're going to have a funny story out of it. It might be embarrassing, but you learn to laugh with it and go, yeah, that wasn't too funny at the time. <laughs> no, that's well, not how I was looking at it. You brought up a good point, too. We have to not feel guilty about laughing. You know, we need to take advantage of any and every opportunity for laughter because, you know, you're, you're going to be under so much stress and so much duress. You know, you need every opportunity to feel good, even if it's just for a couple minutes. Oh, I know. My mom fell in the doorway at the cabin one day, and we, we couldn't get her up for nothing. And so my daughter and I are trying to get her up, and my mom's a short, you know, and, and real stocky woman, and she didn't know how to bend her knees. Like, after her bend her knees, and she literally, she bent her pinky finger, goes, okay, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, that's not working, you know, and and we couldn't get her up, and all of a sudden, the three of us, we are laughing so hard, because we can't get grandma off the floor. Then my husband comes in, and he sees us, and he's like, this isn't funny, <laughs> and that made us laugh even harder. My mom looked at them and she's like, it kind of is, you know, and, and we, you know, the way we had to go about 
you know, getting her up because she didn't know how to bend her knees and we had to lift her up so her legs were actually against uh, the wall. And then I was telling my daughter, like, you know, kick the back of her knees, you know, so her feet would drop down. And I mean, it was, it was just like a three stooges type movie. And, but we laughed so hard and wish she was laughing with us and oh my God, I, I, I'll never forget that moment. I will never, ever forget the moment or when she, she slid one time out of the bed and we don't know how this happened. Wow. And there's a, and there's a high boy dresser and somehow her legs got under the high boy dresser. I, we don't know. She wasn't hurt. She wasn't scraped. She just stuck under the high boy dresser, and I, we just, you know, we just, we just laughed. We lifted the dresser. We finally got her out of there. But I mean, it was just like a fluky, fluky thing. And you just got to look at it and go, you know, God's given us a little gift here. There of, you go. Of a, little, of a little levity. Let's take this, and you know, if we're laughing, she's she's gonna laugh. We're not laughing at her. We're laughing at the situation, but she's not going to be scared versus if you're going in all nervous and upset and, you know, anxious, she's going to mirror all that stuff back to you and it's just going to, and you're going to mirror her stuff and it's just, it's going to intensify. It's like laughter's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Now, um, you also mentioned in the book that, you noticed your mom's behaviors um, had changed and you realized it was time to kind of put her wish to plan her funeral in play. And yet you knew, like most of us, if we bring it up, everyone thinks you think they're dying. So how did you deal with that? I thought that was really interesting how you guys approached that. Well, initially, I I redirected her, and it's so funny. I've I've been involved with hospice for many years, so, you know, I I knew the importance of doing things like advanced care planning, and I knew how pre-planning funerals, you know, took so much stress off of your family. So I knew all of these things, but yet when my mother first mentioned it, I freaked out. And Mm -hmm. it's like I became every stereotype with regard to, you know, oh, if we plan the funeral, then she's going to die quicker. I mean, all of those things that I knew were ridiculous, I became. <laughs> and so that's yeah. what I'm saying. They know certain things, but all of that common sense seems to go out of the window when you're dealing with the situations yourself. So initially I redirected her because I did not want to deal with it. And then over time I was able to become more rational in my thinking and understand that this was something that was important to her. She wanted to plan her funeral to be done the way she wanted it done, and she also wanted to take care of the expense because she did not want to cause any financial distress to any of her children. So I made the decision that if she brought it up again, that in the moment that she brought it up, we would do it. I knew that I couldn't bring it up because if I brought it up, she would think that I was thinking she was going to die, you know. So Mm -hmm. I knew enough to wait until she brought it up again, and it just happened to be when we were having um, breakfast at one of her favorite little places in Ravenna. It's called Megan's Family Restaurant, and she, she would love going there for breakfast with some of her friends who would come and pick her up. And she said, I want to plan my funeral. And I said, you know what? 
as soon as you finish breakfast, we'll go over to the funeral home, which was only a couple blocks away, and that's what we did. And mm-hmm. um, what what amazed me about her is she had this uncanny ability to become lucid and remain lucid whenever she needed to be for a long time. So we went, we took care of the funeral, we went to the bank and got the funds to pay for the funeral, went back and paid for the funeral, she picked out her casket, she picked out the dress that she wanted to be buried in, you know, she just did all of that. Now, of course, by the time we reached her house, she had no memory of any of it. And we just never had to bring it up again. So, that's not that's a nice way to to that you handled handled the situation needless to say and and that's important um I, I know for my mom you know those details were extremely important to her and and gave her a lot of calm you know exactly. even if it, even if it wasn't talked about a lot towards towards the end um she knew she just knew we'd already we'd already done that and uh, you know everything was in was in good hands, and it's about you know folks. It's not about life and death. It's about smart living. Every right. kid at eight should have a power of attorney, you know, and uh, things in place, healthcare directives, wills, all that stuff. Um, we wait too long, and we point the needle towards the end instead of saying this is just good business. This is smart. This will ensure my life um, is lived out the way I want. Um, and at the end, it will wrap up the way I want. And, there you go. And it won't be a burden to others. And, and that's... And that, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, and that's a point that I tried to bring home in my lessons in the book, too, that you, you know, encourage your loved ones, you know, while they're not too far along in the process to to make their wishes known and then make sure that you know where important documents are. Make sure that you know whether or not there's safe deposit boxes, wills, who are the attorneys that handled these things, where are the copies, you know, who has the originals. Just making sure that you know where all that stuff is just just really prepares you, better prepares you um, in the end. And you're going to be so stressed dealing with just the death itself that, having those things in place will just make it a lot easier on everyone involved. Agree. And if you have decided um, as a family or the person has as an individual that they want an autopsy um, of their brain, that information needs to be readily accessible and available and coordinated with the funeral home and the community, you know, if they're living in one. So, you know, don't don't forget about that. Same same with VA papers and things like that. You think you got everything and then all of a sudden you don't. Um, so um, important stuff to just get out of the way so that you can, when the time comes, you can deal on an emotional level with what you need to do and just hand the paperwork over to the people who know how to process it. Now, I want to um, just also mention one other thing. You noted that your mom was... Um, talking about kind of backyard cemeteries and, you know, and you were trying to figure out what's going on with all of that. <clears throat> and you, you realized she was watching like court TV and, and murder mysteries while she was in bed. And then the TV was left on. And once you guys turned that off, 
once she was sleeping, you didn't hear about that anymore. And I think people don't realize the importance of the subconscious or even with dementia, how things change that they might not realize it's a show and all of a sudden they might be in a stage where they think it's live and outside their door and happening in their world. Um, so being being aware of that. I, I also, before we wrap up here, I can't believe uh, it's gone so quickly, but it always does. I'd like you to talk, because you talk about rehab, and um, she went into rehab like three different times. Can you just tell people kind of what rehab was like and and why and what you learned through that process. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of us have certain expectations that are very unrealistic when it comes to a rehab facility. A rehab facility is not a long-term care facility um, that is staffed to care for people, you know, 24-7, they're, they're very limited in their staff. It's a rehab facility is also called a skilled nursing facility or a SNF. And in our experience, and I don't know if others are different, but in our experience what we saw is that they really were not equipped to handle someone with dementia. My mom had severe spinal stenosis, and um, on occasion she lacked the ability to walk. You know, she might have had a fall uh, that did a little damage and she'd end up going to the hospital, she'd have some kind of event that would send her into the hospital and that would require a subsequent stay at the rehab facility. Um, Again, they're not staffed, I don't think, the ones that we used anyhow were not adequately staffed to care for a person with dementia. When you say things to someone with dementia like, you know, push your call button if you need help, they don't know what a call button is. They're not going to remember to to buzz you if they need to go to the restroom or whatever. In my mom's case, she couldn't figure out, well, half the time she didn't know where she was. Um, If she had to leave her room to go to the cafeteria, she would follow her roommate because she didn't know how to get where she was supposed to go. And then another thing that we experienced was, and this is common with long-term care facilities as well as hospitals, there are illnesses that are that your loved one is probably going to be exposed to, and if their immune systems are weakened, they may contract those illnesses. And some facilities have different ways, different protocols in place for handling. My mom developed uh, C. diff infection, uh, VRE infection, you know, multiple infections. Um, Hospitals would point their fingers at the nursing home or the SNF, the SNF would point their fingers at the hospital. You'd have someone saying, well, you know, a staff member at the, at the rehab facility would say, yeah, you know, we, we don't have to, re- to wear gloves and gowns. That's an option for us. You know, so it's just you need to really educate yourself when you're searching for facilities, and actually it's a good idea to do it ahead of time when looking for a rehabilitative facility in the event that your loved one has uh, an an event that that requires them to stay in rehab for a while, do your homework now. Find out, you know, what kind of special help they have in place for someone who has dementia. You know, what's their staff to patient ratio. Go to medicare.gov and um, nursing home compare. 
and look at the stats that are on there. Look for citations and things along that that um, that line, and also recognize that at some point your loved one may end up getting more infections, and those infections are going to be harder and harder for your loved one to overcome. And at that point, you make the decision whether you want to continue that cycle because that's what happens. It becomes a vicious cycle. Um, home, hospital, rehab. Home, hospital, rehab. You have to make that difficult decision whether this is something that your loved one would really want to continue or whether it might be time to, to think hospice. And instead of going through all of those aggressive measures, you know, just focus on comfort as opposed to cure. Yep. And and that's so important because all of those changes in environment, too, typically make the dementia worse, um, you know, over time. And, and some some pop back, some don't go. And so right. every, every time, and, you know, we would think the hospitals would be a safe place for people, but they're really not. I mean, they're not... They're not a comfortable healing place for even those that are sick, you know, because the things are beeping and people are coming in the room all the time, you know, every hour or so to, to check vitals. And, you know, a person with dementia really needs somebody with them 24-7. You're right, they do. They reach a point where that is necessary. Yeah. And some hospitals, you can ask if there's, um, some of them will have a, a patient advocate that's a volunteer, which sometimes can be scary, too, with a person with dementia. Um, and some actually have hired staff that will stay with some. Now, that's kind of, it, it isn't standard care, but it's out there and it's worth asking for. Um, now, I also want to ask you if there was one message that you would want to share with, with caregivers, care partners, care companions, what would that be, Nabina? Wow. One message that I would share is that, you know, recognize that you cannot take care of anyone else if you're not adequately taking care of yourself. Um, if you're run down and you're angry and you're overly anxious, what kind of quality care are you actually going to be able to provide? So you absolutely have to be selfish enough and it's not really being selfish, but you, you absolutely need to make sure that you're doing what you can to take care of yourself. And that means, you know, that may mean calling in extra forces. It may mean um, taking advantages of some uh, wonderful organizations out there. Uh, one that I think of in northeastern Ohio is the Dementia Friendly Life which is a wonderful organization. They actually had the first memory cafe in, in the state of Ohio, I believe. But they provide services for, you know, where both the caregiver and the person with dementia can come in and do activities. And, um, you know, just, just find that support. Reach out to the Alzheimer's Association to find out what kind of supportive services they have available for you. Reach out for friends and family. Don't feel like you have to do it by yourself. You know, there are people who are more than willing to help you. Just recognize their way may be different from yours. But, you know, accept the help. Accept the help. Exactly. And I, I think it's important, too, with those 
uh, support groups and stuff, I, back in the day, you know, this is 36 years ago for me, I viewed a support group as one more thing I had to put on my list to do for my mom, and I just didn't have the bandwidth. And I didn't look at it as helping me. I just looked at it as one more thing for her. And I, I had it all wrong. I had it totally all wrong, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it it of us by by participating in that. And, you know, and it, it refueled me, you know, um, sometimes – I, I know I went through this. I didn't know how empty I was because you just kind of get used to your new normal and the new weight of whatever it is you're carrying. And yeah. then all of a sudden you get filled and you're like, holy crap, I did not know I was that empty. And it's like, I, I feel pre- I feel like a person again, you know, because sometimes you get out of sync. Uh, I know I did. and um, But that was just who I became. You know, I was too busy being busy, and I forgot to breathe a little life into myself. And um, it, it's important, important stuff. Uh, that's for sure. To to you know, be able to uh, to be able to make those adjustments and not feel guilty about them. Now, Labina, um, what's the best way for people to get your, get a hold of your book? Uh, right now it's on Amazon, so if you just go to the Amazon site um, and just the, the easiest way is to type my name. If you type I love you always, you're going to get a ton of other things that come up. But if you type Labina Fleming, L-A-B as in boy, E-N as in nickel, A, Fleming, F-L-E-M-I-N-G, in the search box on Amazon, uh, That'll bring up my book. Also, my website, labinafleming.com, has a link to the book as well. Wonderful. Well, it has just really been a joy to spend this uh, hour with you. Uh, I, I can't, uh, I, I can't tell you um, what a pleasure it's been. And I hope that our audience members will reach out to you, check out your website. Uh, go to your Facebook page, your Twitter, your Instagram, your LinkedIn page. We have all of those listed for you. And um, don't forget to, to buy the book. I think you'll I think you'll learn a lot and be comforted and supported that you're not alone in this journey. Thank, Thank you, you again. So Thank you. In wrapping up, I just want to, again, thank our audience. And if you have any questions or maybe you want to be our next uh, guest, I'd love to talk to you. Just reach out to me at Lori at Alzheimer'sSpeaks.com. Have a blessed week, everyone. Bye now. Turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.